Sessionable. We are live. We are Sessionable live. Um, welcome everybody to the, what, the fourth ever Sessionable. Thank live. you, thank you. Um, be- before we start, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Days Brewery Tours. Uh, yeah. They are running the Pine of Origin bus, apparently. Yeah, it's Woo! pretty good. So, and uh, a big thanks to Mick and the, the crew at Royal Albert as well. Yeah, thank you, Mick yeah. and crew. Yes. Um, uh, full disclosure, Tom and I work for the Royal Albert. Tom, Liam and I all work for Days Brewery Tours. So, <laughs> um, it's a bit it's of a, a, it's a nice little love fest. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Your uh, hat's a bit of a giveaway there, mate, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Someone had to wear one, come on. <laughs> well, you're wearing a Royal Albert hat, Brad. Yeah, so. I, full disclosure, I don't work for the Royal Albert. <laughs> yeah. um, all right, so we might uh, get started with introducing um, some of our guests. Uh, we've got two awesome guests with us. We'll start with maybe the brewer of the beer that uh, we're all drinking as our kind of welcome beer. Um, this is the Colonial Australian IPA, and we've got with us uh, Justin Fox from Colonial. Cheers. Hi, everyone. So did you brew this beer, Justin? Uh, look, that's uh, very, very difficult to say. We're a team of brewers who uh, work really hard at producing all of our beers. No, this is, our la- this is one of our, our newest uh, members of the family. So uh, this is uh, one of the freshest cans you'll probably get. We canned this on Wednesday last week. Yeah. Nice, nice. It tastes really good. Um, and so, uh, tell us a bit about yourself, um, Justin, your, your history coming into Colonial and uh, kind of what your position is there. Uh, so, I'm a, an engineer who found beer at the Sail and Anchor, the mighty Sail and Anchor in Fremantle. Uh, worked a shift there as a bartender and asked for a Bohemian Pilsner at the end of the shift and they told me that you don't drink shit beer like that here, son. Um, <laughs> I was poured an IPA and the rest is history. I've, I've never worked a day in engineering in my life since I studied the degree. And, uh, yeah, went and worked for the Monk in Fremantle. Uh, did a few years there. Found myself at, uh, working for Lion at the Swanbury in WA. And when that um, was unfortunately shut down through the uh, unfortunate um, amalgamation of conglomerates, I found a job at Colonial in Margaret River and we've since grown to, to buy a second brewery and, and come across to Port Melbourne in Victoria. Very nice. Um, and um, we'll introduce our second guest as well, um, Kathleen from Nip of Courage. Yeah. Um, give it up for Kathleen, everybody. Thank you, guys. Um, so, Kathleen, could you tell us a bit about... Um, about yourself and about who Nip of Courage is as well. Yeah, sure. Um, I've been in the liquor industry now for almost 25 years. Um, everything from working for blue chip companies like Carlton and United, Lion Nathan, um, all, all the big guys basically. Um, yeah, I started this business up, Nip of Courage, about three years ago. It's uh, distributing uh, nationally small Australian craft distilleries, uh, distributing their products. Uh, What a lot of people don't realise in Australia is that about 90% of craft distilleries are based in rural areas where economies are fragile and job opportunities are limited. That's why a lot of us haven't actually heard of a lot of these places As it stands, there's currently about 73 craft distilleries and it's basically riding the coattails of the craft beer boom. Awesome, thank you. Yeah, awesome. So throughout the night, guys, we're going to have three more beers plus the one um, we're already drinking, the IPA. Uh, And we're going to match two of those beers to to Aussie craft spirits. So 
Um, one of which is uh, from your um, catalogue, Kathleen, and the other is uh, West Wind's Gin, which is also a, a favourite of everyone's, I think. Yeah. I think that's part of Justin's catalogue now. <laughs> oh, we do drink a little bit of West Wind's, yeah. <laughs> so, um, Kathleen, um, you're talking about the regionality of our craft uh, spirit. Uh, industry. Um, how did you start finding all these distilleries? Uh, good question. I've been working in export for about nine years and I saw the trend that was happening in the US and the UK with craft beer and craft spirits, basically following the trend of craft beer. And I started looking into it in Australia and realised that no distributor was really representing the Australian companies. So I did all my research and realised that they were in the middle of nowhere, a lot of these guys. And I tried doing a bit of business over the phone to try and get them signed up, but they were all um, very cagey about it and wanted to deal with people in person. So I had to pretty much pack my bag and spend thousands of dollars to go out to these regions. Um, one of the rums that we're tasting tonight, the Hoochery, it took me two days to get there and about $2,000 later on all the regional flights and everything to get there. It's based up in Kununurra, which is northern WA in the Kimberley region. So that was uh, quite, quite an adventure. But, yeah, when I actually got out to these places, I'm, I'm glad that I did, you know, and I do have a relationship like that. It's quite important to um, work with these people in person and, and build a rapport and get to know their businesses. There's a lot of, um, I guess, uh, the struggles that they have with their businesses and it helped me understand the tyranny of distance that these guys are faced with as well. So you must be, like, a pretty good expert in shipping and... And logistics across the country, Hell I'd imagine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, what what makes you want to? Well, what what's the criteria for you to, to pick up a new distillery? What what are you looking at? Um, what we look for is um, firstly people that are actually handcrafting the spirits themselves. Um, we don't really take on uh, people that get their products made in larger uh, facilities. Uh, we're looking for the true handcrafted products made by the distillers themselves. A lot of the guys we deal with are actually, um, you know, one-man bands or husband and wife teams. And we're looking for people that we can grow with. Um, we do favour, I guess, copper stills over stainless stills. Um, and we are looking for people... In general, because we're a small business as well, we're looking for people that that we gel with and connect with as well and and that, I guess, have the um, same ideas as us as wanting to grow and and grow their business together with ours. Have you ever taken on something that... um, Well, I mean, I guess what I wanted to say is, is there anything that you've just tried that's just completely blown you away and just wondered why no one else is drinking this or does that happen every single time? Yeah, I think a lot of the times, and I think that came across when I first started up, one of the first distilleries that I ever took on was Belgrove Distillery in Tasmania. He's a pretty amazing guy, and I just couldn't believe no one was representing him. He's one of three whiskey distilleries in the world that's paddock to bottle, so he grows all his own grain and processes everything himself. And he's also the greenest distillery in the world too. Um, He operates his farming equipment and distillery equipment on biofuel, which is recycled uh, cooking oil basically that he converts into fuel. And all the leftover mash from the distilling process when he makes his whiskey is um, fed to his sheep and they provide 
poo for fertiliser for the next <laughs> crop of rye. Um, it's a really lovely story and I just couldn't believe no one was interested in representing him. He'd knocked on the doors of several big distribution companies and no one was even interested and overnight he's become a success pretty much. And is part of what you're doing taking these um, producers across Australia and I guess across the world and really showcasing what they're doing and what's the feedback you're getting from that? Yeah, look, um, people are really interested in Australian products. I think um, especially in Asia and also UK and US, uh, we've received a lot of interest from there because same with uh, food products and beer and wine in Australia, there's a stricter standard with quality. And I think that's what attracts a lot of uh, overseas uh, countries with Australian produce and and products. The other thing that's uh, really interesting with Australian spirits overseas is uh, the unique botanicals and uh, products that we have over here as well. And sometimes distilling methods uh, is a huge interest for the overseas markets as well. In fact, something like rye whiskey is absolutely uh, been massively received in the US, but Rye whiskey in Australia is not that popular. It's um, yeah, more yeah. single malt. Well, I remember trying to track down a bottle of Belgrove white rye for like five years ago or something like that, and it was the only white rye you could find in Australia at the time. And That's right. I remember getting it from the shop I was running at the time and just watching it sit on the shelf for like six months because no one knew what it was, and then all of a sudden white ryes were becoming a thing internationally. We were starting to get more international ones, and it was just really cool to see an Australian ahead of the curve, really, I guess. Yeah, yeah. it is. And there aren't many 100% rye whiskies in Australia as well. What a lot of people don't realise as well is with distilling, with things like whiskey, it's the first basically like making beer but without the hops. So um, a lot of our guys do their own brew, that brew their own beer to start with as well um, from scratch, from the grain. And... Um, you know, uh, have their own cultures and yeast and that that they develop. But, um, yeah, it's it's basically the first step of, you know, making beer and but without the hops and then they distill it from there and it goes into barrels. That's basically the easiest way to describe how, how whiskey's made. Awesome. Thank you. So, Jess, um, so what, do you see a lot of parallels with what Kathleen was talking about in some ways with what, what you guys do, being regional to start with, I guess, and getting it out to the masses? Um, yeah, look, being regional has been difficult for us in our growth, for sure. Uh, we've, in Margaret River, where we, we buy in our own water, so um, we've got diesel-generated power, we treat all our own waste and, and have to get it to a level to irrigate it back on the farm. So we, we've been stagnated in our own growth just from being regional, that we, we can't just apply another tank to the system and and get another X amount of kegs out the door because that just means we're buying another three tanks of water um, every week. So for us, the, the next stage was getting a second facility on the East Coast, and that's really opened the doors for us that we're now finally two years into canning. We've finally been able to add a third, fourth and fifth can to the range. So yeah. um, regional has presented huge barriers to us. There's a, there's a massive cost as well in, in just getting everything to the city every time. You know, there's, yeah. another, there's another whole freight loop on every occasion, both for your raw ingredients coming in and your, your finished product coming out. It all adds costs. So. I've never actually thought about having to worry about water to make beer because you just get it out of a tap, I don't know. Like, that's pretty insane. Yeah, well, beer, you know, even the big guys consider themselves pretty good if they can get down to sort of five litres of, uh, of water per... Mm-hmm. or five hectolitres of water per hectolitre of beer. 
Um, we were running at about that mark in, in Margaret River, which considering the number of hoses and things we have around and manual processes was pretty good. But that's, yeah, it's, it's a lot of water. Yeah. You know, it doesn't, doesn't come from anywhere and it, it puts you in touch with the understanding that it's a, it's a finite resource and that beer actually chews quite a lot of it. So every, every time you have a pint, there's two and a half litres of water have gone into making that pint. So is it just water as it comes from the source, Justin, or do you actually treat the water before it goes into the brewing uh, so process? So we, we treat everything. Um, water as an ingredient is pretty critical to beer. It's, it's no secret to whiskey, to any of the processes, it's really important. Um, one of the most critical things is the, the salt mix in that water. So a lot of breweries now are going to the point of, of reverse osmosis or um, stripping the water back to an absolute pure state and then creating a salt mix. Uh, we just go through a series of filters in Margaret River. Um, the water in, in southwest WA or, or the rainwater through our winter is really good and clean that, to the point where we, even if we did strip out those salts, we would be putting them back in anyway to a level. So whether we're, we're tr- trying to create a Kolsch or, or a heavy ale, we'd still be at least putting that much calcium and magnesium and stuff back in the water. So we're really lucky that we can just clean it up, run it through some fine filters, take the chlorine out of it um, and go from there and definitely in the ipas we throw a lot more salts back into it awesome um so you touched a little bit briefly on the ipa we got in front of us um is this a new beer for the range or is it new in the cans or Uh, this is a new beer for our whole range so um our ipa journey started i've been with colonial for for nearly four years now when we joined the brewery we had a very traditional english style ipa and um whilst it it was really true to style the, the market at that point was maybe a little bit uh, new to the world of IPAs and saw IPA as a, as a purely American thing. So had a lot of conversations with some other breweries that made some really great IPAs. Gage Rhodes was actually one of them, and they won uh, Sleepy Giant had won champion IPA that year at the Perth Royal Beer Show. Uh, and I remember talking to Aaron Heary from Gage, and he said it's great, but it doesn't sell because people drink it and go, where's the, where's the pine aromatics, where's the tropical? It's not an IPA. So... Whilst he was trying to reinvent that style and, and really tell people that an English IPA was a style, we, we set out on a bit of a different journey and decided to try and brew a different IPA every time we brewed it. Yeah, awesome. Uh, we created a thing called IPA on Tour and did, um, in the end, I think we got to 15 or 16 different IPAs over two and a half, three years. Yeah. Um, and that was a really great journey for us. We did French IPAs with Black Malt. We did Belgians. We did Japanese rice IPAs. Because um, IPA in its essence is really about high hops as an antimicrobial effect and, and high alcohol as an antimicrobial effect. So really it's just about alcohol and hops to make the beer last longer. So how did, uh, you, go about, how did you go about testing those out, all of those different recipes that you'd brewed and where, who, who decided whether they were any good or not? Um, oh, look, we, the, the public, I guess, in the end of the day. We, we, once, you, once you understand brewing, it's, it's like cooking. You can, you can get to a point where you know something's going to work. You understand the flavours and things you, you're putting together. There's a definite um, risk in the opportunity of refinement. I think uh, when you go to some place like Gab's and you see 100 beers that are brewed for the first time ever, you can, you can, that lack of refinement stands out. Because I guarantee if you went to Gab's and everyone was on their second iteration of those beers, the quality would lift remarkably. Um, but you take that into consideration when you're making the beer as well. So, yes, we might think we could really push this beer, but we know, hang on, this is our first shot. We need to be a, a tad conservative. We need to step that bitterness into a point where we know it's going to balance. And you might then drink it and go, look, it could have been a little bit more. We could have 
enhance that a bit, but you have to play a little bit on the safe side when you're doing those one-off beers, especially at, at our volume of 80 kegs a batch. We're actually looking at a smaller tank now, so we can trim that into 20, 20 kegs a batch and maybe have a, a little more balls and aggression at, at really aiming for what we really want to create, knowing that at the end of the day, the risk is reduced a little bit. Okay, so when you say the public chose, it was the local market, the local WA market, that know and love you at the... Yeah, yeah we, we didn't really have a problem with moving most of them. In fact, we just saw a generally step progression as we went on that it, the, the IPAs were eight weeks apart and then seven and then six and then five and the, the concept of what we were doing really gained traction. Awesome. Um, so we're going to start bringing around, uh, I guess, the second beer or the first beer that we're going to all, all drink together and, and chat about. It's the um, uh, probably a favourite of many people in the room. It's the Feral Watermelon Warhead. Um, so that'll be coming out in a sec, and that'll be um, matched with uh, Westwind's Cutlass, I think, which is their slightly stronger gin. So we'll be, that'll be the, we're doing Cutlass, oh, wow. yeah. Um, so um, we might just, just before, sorry Tom, before we get on to the, the next round of beers, can we just talk a little bit about the massive hole that's in the top of our cans? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. That's a good, that's a very good um, Did you get these point. cans on sale, Justin? Yeah, yeah look, this is, um, this is... The, the discount stuff out of China. We um, nah, look. It's actually really funny that you say this. We we saw this lid, three sixty lid, uh, is what we call it. We've seen other people now launch it in New Zealand as a rip lid. Um, but when we installed our can line, we we the, the guy who was over from Canada was was basically just mentioned uh, this lid as something different, and we looked at it at YouTube and thought that's a great way to open the aroma. Um, in in the United States, it's a, it was actually invented in Japan. Um, it's been big in the United States, but it's always been used on on commercial beers. It's always been seen with a little bit of a consumption over quality sort of eye. We saw it really differently when we looked at it and saw it as a way to turn a can into a glass. So everyone knows that, like wine, craft beer should be enjoyed from a glass. Like it's no secret little creatures will write on the side of their bottles best enjoyed from a glass you need to open the aroma of a beer to fully enjoy it Um, but that's not always uh, an applicable circumstance you know if you're out in the swimming pool in in Perth summer uh, or you're out fishing and you're out camping you know not not everyone's carrying glass around Um, and to to take a a can and enable us to be able to smell the beer while we're drinking it was a no-brainer for us which is why we launched it on the small ale, and that's about two years ago. And yep. even today, we uh, we still see people surprised. We posted a, a shot of the, the new pale ale. We put it on our pale and IPA, all our hoppy beers, and um, people have still said, hey, I think there's something wrong with your seamer. You've got a big hole in your can. <laughs> and, um, Do people actually say that? Yeah, on, on this is on a on <laughs> Mel- Melbourne Beer Geeks Facebook. You oh, know, God. People are still commenting <laughs> that there's still a problem with your seamer there, mate. And so our... One of our beer ambassadors had to take a second photo with the lid next to it and go, no, it's actually the lid. And this guy's just lost it. Mind blown. Yeah, yeah mind yeah. blown on Facebook. And we're like, mate, we've been doing it for two years. Like, come on. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's true, though, because, like, even, like, nowadays, you grab a small ale or, you you know, um, you go to a bar where they've got a, a can of small ale on tap and you, and you crack it and you just see people's faces and be like, whoa, what the fuck's that? And it's like, I need to order one of those just because that can looks legit. So, and, and because of that, we've tried actually, and that's probably to our, maybe to our own detriment, we've tried not to make a lot of noise about that. We want people to drink our beer because they like our beer, yeah. not because it's got a fancy lid, but we think that that improves the way the beer drinks. And at the end of the day, that's what matters. If, if the beer drinks really well, 
then you're more likely to go, you know what, I really enjoy that, I'm going to do it again. We don't necessarily need to make you drink it only for that reason. We want you to drink it for yeah. other reasons. I, I mean, we'll, yeah, we've been pretty big supporters of it, you know, since uh, since the small ale first came out in that style. And I guess the surprise from us is that it hasn't been followed yet. I mean, that's 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 quite a surprise to me because, uh, you know, I think it is just a win situation. Does it add a lot of cost to your canning? Uh, it, it adds a little bit of cost. Um, but that's, for us, the, the balance is, is worth it. Um, yeah. I don't necessarily... A lot of people come to us and go, why isn't it on the draft, our Kolsch? And for us, the Kolsch is all about being what beer is. Beer was. You know, we went back to Cairns by that stage three, almost three years ago and and created Kolsch because it's what beer was. It's a 375ml can of beer that you don't necessarily... It's, it's the beer... It's our representation of beer. If someone asked me tomorrow, what does a beer look like? We would pour them one of our drafts, our Kolsch, and say that's a beer. It, it doesn't matter what it is. It's just you just feel like a beer today. So for us, the three hundred and sixty lid doesn't work with that. It doesn't relate as much as the aroma of a Kolsch would be enhanced slightly by that. It's it's yeah. more about beer as it used to be and taking people back to a simpler time in beer. Even though it's it's our most difficult beer to brew. Sure. It's um, a Kolsch. There's nowhere to hide. You know. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. And so, what for you is the. Um when you make the choice of when you release new beer, if it goes into this, the 360 lid or a generic can, is it just things that would benefit from that massive aroma lift? Or Yeah, well, we, we, so we've just launched a new pale ale, a new IPA and a cider. Um, to be honest, we, the IPA was a no-brainer for us. We really wanted to, to open that beer up and we said no to the pale. And a week before printing, we were like, why are we not putting this lid on a pale ale? It's all about hops as well. So yeah, um, we stepped back and... and flipped everything on its side and, and put the lid on the pail as well but it, it won't go on the draft it's not about it's about that for that but it'll stay on all our hoppy beers awesome yeah awesome. i i actually love how you can get your nose into it to smell it as well and it's really great for boiler makers yes yeah just tip it straight in, tip it yeah. straight in. <laughs> absolutely and uh it makes a really good um well steve finney from ferrell's turned it into a few things that we won't go into but it actually it actually Give it another beer, he'll probably go into it, don't worry. It actually makes a really good, like, little succulent pot or something as well, you know, this, or, or a little pen, pencil case on your on your desk. It's uh, What, a succulent pot or a holder for succulent <laughs> pot? Or... <laughs> um, all right, well, so we'll, we'll bring out that um, the next beer now. Um, and I'd also just like to say we've got um, two prizes to give away tonight. The first is, um, it's going to be a shirt. You can probably choose which shirt you'd prefer. We've got the yellow Burt shirts. No one wants that one. Uh, it's a great shirt. <laughs> um, the, the white uh, Pint of Origin bus shirt, um, or the black um, uh, We're Here for Beer Royal Albert shirt. Any of those. Uh, so whoever um, asks the best question tonight will win their choice of one of those shirts. Just a forewarning with that one. Two years ago, the guy who won the best question is now sitting on the podcast with us. So, yeah, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's where he got that shirt. Yeah, so not um, really a prize, more of a like kind a of burden, obligation. Guess, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, be careful. And then everyone, um, hopefully, you also have your raffle ticket that we gave you when um, you bought your your entry for the podcast. Uh, we'll pull those raffle tickets together um, at the end of the show. And the winner will win uh, this awesome Australian Guide to Spirits. 
Do you want to tell us quickly about the, the book? Yes. Uh, so it was written by Luke McCarthy, who works for Fairfax and is a spirits enthusiast. Uh, he also is a bartender at Whiskey and Almond in Melbourne, which That's is... a dangerous place to be. It yeah. is an awesome place. <laughs> and um, they're also big supporters of Australian craft spirits. But, um, yeah, Luke is very passionate about the whole movement that's happening here in Australia. And he actually went around to visit all of the distilleries in this book. It covers the history of Australian craft spirits, where it all started out and came from... Um, there's also a word in there from the godfather of uh, distilling in Australia, Bill Lark, as well. Really interesting read for people that um, want to learn a bit more about um, the whole movement that's happening now with craft spirits. And how much of your portfolio makes up, do you think, like what's covered in a book like this? Uh, there's actually some really nice features on uh, the Hootry or Spike yep, from the Hootry yep. and WA in there that's um, from his visit and... Also from Peter Bignall, there's a really nice write-up there. And also from William McHenry in Port Arthur, Tasmania. But, you know, all of our distillers are actually represented in this book as well, which we're really chuffed about. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it's a good, a good thing to bring up is, uh, especially sitting here at the Royal Albert, is, um, you know, we're in a, a venue that's quite early on, I guess. Yes, you were... Taken, you, or Mick and the, and the yeah. crew here have taken the decision to go all Australian Actually, spirits. Actually, the Royal Albert was the first hotel or pub in Sydney to range, like, a massive range of Australian craft spirits. So Mick has been very, very supportive from the very... From pretty much day dot when when yeah. uh, the movement got off the ground. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. He's ahead of his time. Yeah. 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 You guys all are. Sure, yeah, I hope you're you didn't awesome. hear that. His head just got 20 centimetres bigger. No, um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's something like, you know, for I think most people in this room spend a fair bit of time at the Royal Albert, I think it's fair to say. And it's something I think we might take for advantage. But it's, um, it's funny, just rattling off all those names. It's like, oh, yep, they're all sitting here behind the bar. This is pretty sick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, yeah, there are, it's, it's amazing. There are only about probably eight bars in Australia yeah. that range 100% Australian craft spirits so, and with no imported products. So, I mean, um, Justin was talking about, you know, origins at the Sailor Anchor and places like this, which is, you know, pretty much the epiphanies of Australia's craft beer scene. Uh, you mentioned Bill Lark. Do you, is that where you, you is yeah. that where we can say Australia's spirit scene came from? Yeah. Well, uh, the re, re, you know, a resurgence has co- definitely come from Bill Lark. So, what actually happened? Do you want a quick rundown no, let's on go the for history? It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, back in the 1800s, there was this grumpy old fella called Governor Franklin. Uh, he actually, uh, it was at a point in time when people stopped um, trading with currency and were trading with booze that they were making in their backyards. And um, his wife was a bit of a teetotaler and they decided to put a ban on craft distilling or distilling under commercial volumes. So they pretty much outlawed distilling under stills that were under a certain size. So in the end, the only people distilling in Australia were places like Beanley and um, Bundaberg Rum because they had the big commercial operations. So it wasn't until about 1991, there was a a bearded fella... Um, by the name of Bill Lark down in Tasmania, who um, decided another, he wanted... Is that another thing he was ahead of a time in? in yes, rocking, yes. The, rocking the craft beard. Rocking yeah. the craft beard, <laughs> yeah. 
He's, he's a very cool guy. He, um, he wanted to make some whiskey with his mates and, um, and uh, went to the ATO and went to liquor licensing and said, you know, I want to start a distillery and start making some whiskey. And uh, they basically said, uh-uh, there's a law, you can't do it. And he said, well, when was the law written? It was back in the 1800s. So he uh, lobbied the government uh, to get the law lifted. And in 1992, um, he, he got that lifted. And um, it was basically the start of um, what we're seeing now, which is the movement of craft spirits and, um, and distilleries popping up all over Australia. Uh, Spike, who has the Hoochery Rum, he was basically the second person to get um, his distillery up and running. He was trying for many years before Bill Lark, but Bill Lark was the one who actually awesome. got the government going on it. I think we're also really lucky where you know guys like Spike and Bill are, are still around, so we're still we're still very early on. But um, you know, I think sometimes in the beer world, we talk about some guys who aren't here anymore but we still have these uh, wealths of knowledge with guys like Bill and, and Spike that we can draw upon. So. Yeah we do and it's really lovely um, it, you know there's there has been a couple of people that have passed on that have, have um, contributed a lot to the industry as well but yeah there's there's a lot of older people and a lot of knowledge um, in, in spirits as well a lot of older distillers. Spike is in his 70s Yeah. and um, yeah Bill Lark I think is in his 60s. Yeah. And what's the second generation coming up from that? Because well, yeah, well, it's really interesting. Uh, we do have one of the youngest distillers on our portfolio as well at Corowa. Um, he's a, a young young chap in his early twenties who's got dreadlocks, and they call him the dreaded distiller. But he's um, <laughs> starting to make whiskey uh, for those guys. And um, Corowa's down near Aubrey. It's about an hour inland from Aubrey, and. Um, yeah, they, they're almost like young brewers in a way. Yeah. Um, they're bringing a real funkiness to it. I think with what we're having now too with West Winds, that's also an example of a younger generation picking up a brand and building it and turning it into something really cool. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah. So, guys, in front of us we've got two lovely glasses of, of gold, yeah. sweet, sweet booze. Of, of just um, yummy booze. So, beer-wise, we've got... Is this, I'm assuming it's a watermelon warhead? It's, it's, it is feral watermelon warhead. Um, and uh, to, to, to match with this, we've got the West Winds Cutlass. The Cutlass. Cutlass, yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, is there anyone out there who's never had a boiler maker before? Yeah, we got, we got a awesome. hand up. I'm going to put my hand up. I've yeah. never had one. A second. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a couple of people. Um, who wants to take this one? What a boiler maker is. Oh, do you want to go for that yeah, one? Kathleen? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, it's normally, well, it's, I, I guess, on the borderline of a, a beer, beer cocktail. Some people with a boilermaker will actually mix the spirit into the beer, or some people will use it like a chaser, so they'll drink their beer and, and have the spirit, spirit chaser. Um, I personally would hope that you'll all taste them neat first, the beer on its own first and, oh, and the spirit on its own. If you were, were going to mix them, so um, yeah, please please try them separately first because um, they're both really really interesting products and, and, and good quality before you mix them. Um, just so you can understand where the flavours are coming from as well. Um, and a really important part when you're uh, tasting spirits as well is that try to smell with your mouth a little bit open as well if you can. Uh, it just just helps. 
The other thing is with the spirit, sorry, I'm taking over here. One thing is um, you can also take a little bit of the spirit out of the glass and rub it on your skin on the top of your hand and it takes away the smell or the the alcohol vapours and you can smell the actual botanicals a little bit better as well. I've never never heard of that. That's interesting. That's really interesting. I learned that off Peter Bignall. Okay, I'm going to do that. Belgrove. (laughs) Hey, so I reckon while we all start playing with the playing on our hands, since we've got... um, and Steve Finn, please don't take that to the way that I think you're going to take that. Um, how about we get, since we've got a, like three of the guys from Feral in the audience here, to, to get one of them to talk about Feral yeah. Watermelon Do, would, would one of you want to have a chat about uh, Watermelon Warhead? Finny? Finny? While yeah. Finny comes up, the, the key with any food match is cut, contrast or compliment. And I think the reason Steve had just shouted out, please don't pour West Winds into Watermelon Warhead, because this isn't a compliment match. This is absolutely a contrast match, but it works having the two in tow. So it's really difficult. It's probably the hardest match to do in spirits or food and beer and all of those things is to contrast. It's really easy to cut. You just throw hops and spice. Um, It's really easy to compliment. You just throw a porter at a chocolate cake, but it's really difficult to contrast. So this is a really great match in terms of looking at something completely sour and then a botanical-rich gin. At the a boozy, way they, a boozy they, gin as well. They actually, yeah. you move between the two and you're actually not offended, even though you're jumping to such vast regions. So, um, I'm probably just under the thing, don't fuck with the beer um, and don't fuck with the spirit. Um, so when I, like, I guess everybody drinks things in certain different ways and, and for me, um, I'm, I'm a huge fan of both beer and, and spirits and you know, I'll, always, I'll always sit at the bar no matter what, pretty much with a beer in front of me and a, a rye whiskey. Um, I just love the two together and all the work that's been put into each, each you know, different, well, beer and, and spirit. Yeah, right on, yeah. Um, and I really want to, to taste those two and uh, usually we'll choose something that would, you know, usually complement each other. Um, am I able just to talk about a little uh, yeah. Watermelon Warhead? Yeah, please, yeah. go for it. Um, so Watermelon Warhead, uh, this, this batch that's out now has been out for about two and a half weeks. Uh, we brew this beer still. We brew this beer sort of year round um, out of our Swan Valley Brew Pub, um, and it, it basically still takes just depending, usually between nine and twelve weeks to brew, um, and a fair bit goes into into making this beer. So, uh, when we talk about Gabs beers, um, we we actually treat Gabs, which is uh, you know big big beer festival, which I think most people in this room would know. Um, over in Melbourne, we actually treat that as a, a way to really sort of launch new beers in the market so uh, back in 2011 we we um, probably brewed one of the first black IPAs in Australia which was Karma Citra um, that just joined sort of our core core range last year um, 2011 was uh, 2012 was Watermelon Warhead this beer here um, and this beer sort of won People's Choice Award for that um, and ever since that day we've continued to make it uh, Going on from that, I can sort of keep reeling them off, and those beers have still still been produced. So, uh, Brico Karma, Funkin' Fresh, uh, Funkin' Cat, um, all of those beers continue on, and they actually get better and better as we continue brewing them. And, and same with this uh, this beer in our hand. So, the very first the very first time we brewed Watermelon Warhead, um, it actually probably didn't even register as being uh, alcoholic. So, didn't quite understand what um, basically a ton of watermelon being juiced would actually mean to the alcohol of, of this beer. We actually expected it to creep up a little bit, and it did the exact opposite. Um, did so it water it down? It, didn't, it did actually water yeah. it down, and we're talking, 
across four uh, Chardonnay barrels, like a ton of watermelon juice. So I was pretty much 50-50, um, sort of just a farmhouse, um, mild sort of beer and, and 50% watermelon juice. Um, and it, it, it really just ended up probably, it was probably about 1.5% alcohol. Um, from that time, we sort of crept it up, so it's always like always around 2.9% now, and, and we're just getting better and better at brewing this beer, and, and hopefully one day we'll be able to put it into package. However, we're, I don't know how many times we've been misquoted on the fact that it's going into package. Well, Jackson's um, told us it is. <laughs> yeah, ja- Jackson, Jackson's having something about cans, or... I'm sure he said cans. I'm sure Jackson said cans. He showed me a photo on his phone today of the art for it. So, um, so I did artwork two years ago. <laughs> but but the but one of these things is is, is is this beer can't go anywhere near our near our production brewery. Um, it is still done in in Chardonnay barrels. It is still hand blended to taste. Um, you know any barrels that end up being too sour, we end up kegging off. And that becomes a bit of a bank and a library which we use for blending uh, future batches. So uh, there's, there's, you know, we have tried to do different things that, you know, speed up the process, make it more like, you know, just more consistent. However, it just, it just never works out the way we want it to and we'll continue making it the way we are and, and just limit volume um, for that reason. You know, there's no point in smashing something out if it's, if it's not going to make the room of people here happy. Awesome. Thanks, man. Steve, um, when you started, were there any other sour beers being brewed in Australia? Um, there was plenty of sour beers, but they were probably meant to be down the drain and probably weren't meant to be brewed. <laughs> I think, as, yeah, as he was saying, as far as like pers- purposefully sour beers, yeah. there wasn't a lot. Um, this this Absolute... definitely wasn't our first sour, like our no. first sour beer. Um, our first sour beer was probably um, of a Brett PDO Lacto beer called Funky Junkie, and we also did a Flanders Red, um, which I'm a Funky Junkie, and Jesus, I'm forgetting now, but that was probably that was mid 2000s when we started making them, and a few of them are still still ticking on. Um, however, they've been uh, basically in barrel for it's been three years since our last Funky Junkie release, and and it's still sitting in barrels now, not ready. Wow. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, man. Thanks, um, thanks, Steve. Cheers. Cheers. Yeah. Um, I'm not actually sure who came up with this as a pairing, but it works really well. It's yeah. really cool. It was just like a meeting of, of like 30 seconds between me and Tom about so an hour ago. Tip, typical so, sessionable organisation, yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. It was very yeah. last minute. And, we were like, yeah. I, I was That's like, I want to do, do, like, uh, do Feral Watermelon Warhead, and Tom was like, yeah, let's just do a gin. I was like, all right, yeah. sweet. Oh, so, so it's deliberately contrasting then. Yeah. Is, that, is, that, is that what so, it was? I yes, think they sure. pulled it out of somewhere we shouldn't talk about. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested because you say how this is like a contrasting match, but what would be something that was complementary to a sour beer? What, what sort of style of, of uh, mm. spirit would be complementary to something like this? Yeah, limoncello, yeah. I'd say, is probably the closest to this. Yeah. What I about mean, a vermouth? Yeah, like, yeah, I think vermouth could, could work. Maybe something like a... a Regal Rogue, their um, yeah. their lighter style, the yeah, sweeter yeah. one that yep. they've got. Um, this this one's really interesting, the the pairing because the from a gin point of view, this uh, the cutlass is actually quite savoury. Um, so the boys actually normally serve this sort of style gin with a piece of capsicum. That's their signature garnish uh, with this particular style gin. 
I I actually really like sipping between them. It's it's really interesting. So do yeah, I, yeah. yeah. Um, do we have any, any comments or questions from anyone in the audience? What do you guys think of the pairing? And don't just shout it out. You have to speak into a microphone. We can uh, put your hand up and we There's can... There's a lot of thumbs up. Yeah. yeah. Got a lot of thumbs up. Surprisingly good. Surprisingly good. good. From, uh, from Morgan. <laughs> yeah. Questions. Um, yeah, so does anyone... Yeah. I'm um, very impressed by this gin. It's really, oh, really I, good. I, yeah. The Westwind stuff is, is, is fantastic beautiful. gin, always. I mean, being here during City Craft Beer Week at the WA Pine of Origin and having Westwinds and having uh, you know Colonial here, uh, it's probably remiss of us not to talk about the great relationship that you guys have with uh, Westwinds. Um, do you want to develop Absolutely. that a little bit more? That's, look, that's, the guys, obviously, Westwinds is born in Margaret River as well, and... Um, it, Margaret River's been a great, uh, a great place for creation and, and people who want to really make products. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, artisanal. The wineries have obviously led the way. The breweries have come in. The spirits are coming. Chocolate, ice cream. Uh, it, the list goes on and on. There's people now, uh, orchids, um, fruit, nuts, everything. You know, it's a really, it's a place about produce. Um, and as we've sort of been down there. Everyone gets along really well. So what does a brewer do after a really hard week? Well, we like to drink gin and, and the gin guys really like to have a beer. And so we had a relationship over there. Colonials moved over to, to Port Melbourne and um, Jason Chan, um, one of the, 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 the main distillers for West Winds, has actually opened a bar in South Melbourne. So it was a natural affinity for us to to call that our local at his bar and, yeah. and go there after work and... We actually partnered with them in Gabs. Um, Steve mentioned Gabs before, and this year we, we partnered with them and tried to put beer and gin together. So we did a beer called the Reuben Sandwich. Um, we did um, smoked malt, rye malt, uh, to try and create some pastrami and some smoked flavour. But then we got the, the West Wing guys involved, um, and we did a, a Jason made up a, a lactic acid brine with dill and mustard seed. Um, we put that in there as well, and then they got uh, the actual Cutlass Gin, which had just won champion uh, champion gin in a national competition. I can't name from record, but he <laughs> he did very well. It's a very it's a world class gin, and we took that and put sage, bush tomato, um, and a bit of a sea parsley all together. Distilled it in what was a hundred and eighty proof gin. I think I don't know if wow. the tax department's meant to know about that. Yeah, it's all good. Um, I'm pretty sure they're, they're the number one <laughs> listeners for such yeah, yeah, so that's all right. So, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, we, we had 90% gin and we distilled a little bit amount of that through the through those botanicals and put them back into the beer and, and created uh, a, a sour beer with lactic acid and that and awesome. what we thought represented a Reuben sandwich. So You also it, had probably one of the most dangerous stands at Gab's because you put a deep fry behind it. <laughs> again, I don't know how, how um, <laughs> authoritatively approved that process was. But, uh, yeah, look, Jason... They're just they're creators as well. They're guys that really love to get involved and and do different things and push the limits. So as much as we made Reuben sandwiches, he immediately went and turned all those ingredients and and took the exact same botanicals and turned them in a croquette. And we just we, yeah we deep fried them behind the bar. And and when anyone tried the beer, we gave him a little croquette. It's yeah, it's awesome. about changing people's perception. So we we weren't necessarily there to make everyone order this beer it's a beer you'll probably have one sip of and go wow that's completely changed my mind of what beer could be um it's never going to go in a can it's never going to to be a big seller because quite frankly you have a pint of it and, and it's a challenging beer to approach um but matched with a croquette and everything we, it, people loved it people yeah, really got on board and well. it somehow 
you know, yeah. we scraped into the top ten of the Gabs Festival, which was really positive yeah. for us to to do that with a with a very different beer to what everyone would expect and those sweet a lot of the beers that have won a you know just a lolly in a beer basically yeah, yeah. you know there's white chocolate raspberry pilsners have, have taken out the title because they're they're very attractive and very sessionable did any of you guys get a chance to try the the reuben project at, at gabs um yep. i believe we had it on tap here for quite a while after gabs oh, we yeah, made we 80 cakes of, of it we had to sell yeah. it to someone we, 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 had, we had quite a few cakes it was it was really tasty there's only so many publicans silly enough to order a second keg. <laughs> cheers, well, Mick. I liked it. I liked cheers, it. Cheers to Mick for being one of those guys. So, um, Justin, you guys have uh, um, you guys started off at WA, but you're now running in the East Coast in Victoria. Can you talk us a bit about your East Coast presence right now? Um, we've been dying to get to the East Coast for a couple of years now. Um, as I said, there's been a lot of challenges in, in brewing regionally in, in WA. Uh, we... We've always slated a brewery down in the Mornington Peninsula, but as as so many startups do, there's a, there's been some hurdles to jump with councils and things, and we're really lucky to to get to a position to take over the the ex Matilda Bay facility in Port Melbourne. So, um, kudos to you won't hear many craft breweries say brewers say this, but kudos to to Carlton United. They they're in a position where they're. <laughs> I haven't heard that before, so go on, please. Yeah. Look, look. Give it up for Carlton United. I'm gonna get I'm gonna get stabbed outside from from speaking this yeah, way. I'll, I'll probably stab you too, don't worry. <laughs> Look, the the big breweries have a policy that to, when they when they sell these breweries to knock them down. They don't like to put um, somebody else into into business. But the the guys who are passionate behind that business, granted, up the chain it might have been a bit of a difficult uh, situation that they they didn't resonate with what the craft industry thinks, but. The people working in that building, um, uh, Scott, Chloe, Neil, Dennis, uh, I could, you know, you can go on, Tim. There, there were so many really passionate people making those beers that they didn't want to see that building get knocked down. And, and for them to, to find the loopholes in, in to get it out of their own policy, I guess, and, and actually sell the brewery to someone else and see it not get knocked over is great for craft beer because it's a great facility. It's, they've, they've put a lot of money into it and we can make a lot of beer with it and... And so it's a, it's a really good place to see that at the end of the day, a brewery that can make two million litres of beer in a year didn't get knocked down and, and we can step in there and, and make some more beer for people. It's great. Yeah. It's so cool. how, many, how many strings did you have to pull in order to get? Uh, it's not my section, Chef. It was uh, <laughs> well above my pay grade. Um, at, the, at the end of the day, we're, we're in a different position where we do have a few pubs as well and... The, the crust of it, as I understand it, was we're a customer to them as well. Um, as, yeah. as we're not, we're not a competitor; we're a customer, and, and that was enough of a loophole for them to do, to 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 do what they wanted to do and get it, get out of their own laws. Um, I've got to say, Tom and I had the pleasure of visiting the Colonial Brewery in it Melbourne was amazing, yeah. uh, a couple of months ago, and it's legit. Great, it's one, one, really one cool. of the best cellar doors I've been to. I think it's probably one of the. Un- most underutilized cellar doors yeah, only in the open country. Fridays, is that? Thursdays as well now. Oh, is it now? Yeah. Two days. Indeed. <laughs> no, but seriously, if you guys are in Melbourne, go down and visit the brewery. <laughs> on, a on, a Thursday, on a Thursday or Friday, or Friday yeah. 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 Um, so we you, you, guys have a, you guys have a Sydney presence as well. Can you tell us about that? Uh, Sydney presence? As a venue. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, look, the group has, has just got involved with the Newtown Hotel. Um, one, one thing that's important for Colonial is... Whilst we do have a few pubs, we, we don't we we understand that beer is about more than a model and, and putting the same thing on a lot of people. So 
Um, the first beer we actually put on, on tap there when we got, got into the Newtown was Newtowner from Young Henry's. Um, we're in Newtown. That's a, that's a big beer for the state. Uh, and, and it's important to, to recognise what the locals are drinking. It's not about our own beer. We, we do have a lot of pubs, but in a lot of those pubs, we, we do only have one of our own beers. It's, um, there's so much space for everyone in this industry. And it's important to, yeah, to, to, to create the offering that's right for the people in, in the venues that are going into those venues. Yeah, that's something like I've actually walked into a few colonial uh, pubs in Melbourne and I've actually known their colonial pubs. Um, so I think it's something that they each have their own uh, identity, which is they're not like cookie cutter franchises, I guess, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it's, not, it's nothing compared to your, you know, your Weatherspoons or yeah. all those kind of things in, in the UK. And, and the fact that look, like I, I can walk just... into a pub and you can recognise some other some other establishments a mile away. You can obviously call the line and CUB tap contracts yeah. very quickly. And the last thing I want is is someone to walk in and and go, oh look, oh this is a colonial pub. Look at the lineup, you know, because we're actually about beer, not just colonial beer. We really we've we've got a guest tap at Arbury. Um, we sell a lot of other beers. Yeah. You know, the industry was really great and welcoming us to come to Port Melbourne. We didn't have a keg washer for for quite a long time, and we drove to to Two Birds, to Temple, to Three Ravens, to Hawkers. We're driving utes all around town and washing kegs at all other breweries, and <laughs> and everyone's really welcoming because the industry is like that. The industry there's there's plenty of room in the pie for us all. We just want to make good beer and and carry everyone up with us. If yeah. we can get uh, the breweries who are making good beer to great beer. Um, then we're just going to keep knocking away at that chunk of the pie that the conglomerate's own, and um, we'll all do really well. I think it's a, a nice, refreshing part of the industry, which we don't always see. Oh, I think the consumers don't always see, but and then the current is just how well everyone gets along and it's willing to help each other out. Yes, it's almost ridiculous. when you If you, if you can catch up, and I don't know if there's any winemakers in the room, but, you know, we... We can sit there and they go, wow, our, our functions aren't like that. You guys are just all hugging each other and, and stuff all night. And it's like, well, yeah, why wouldn't we? <laughs> he makes beer and I like it and yeah. he drank my beer yesterday. So, you know, that's, we're friends. What, what's, what's more to it? The yeah. hugging comes later tonight, I think. That's, yeah. <laughs> well, Steve Finney's still in the room, so you better watch out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Kathleen, do you, is there a similar, um, I don't know, love fest in the, in the, in the craft spirits world? It's growing. Um, in a place like Tasmania, they've got the most amount of distilleries in Australia per state. They have a really, really good network amongst the distillers. Uh, on the mainland, it's a bit of a different story um, because Australia is just so big in terms of landmass. These guys are hours away from each other, a lot of the guys, and so the network isn't as tight as what it is in Tassie. Um, we've tried to, I guess, the guys that we look after, build a bit of a network there so that they all talk to each other, which is which has helped a lot. So, yeah. And you bring them together for festivals and... Uh, oh, yes, yeah. yeah. There's definitely, yeah. Uh, I think the festivals are really great for that sort of thing. Um, they get to talk to, obviously, distillers outside of our network as well and... and um, and, and exchange stories and and um, techniques. It's it's um, yeah, definitely yeah. really good good for that. Has there been any collaborations? Like you know, the craft beer world's all about brewers collaborating. Some of that is that something that's ever happened? Is that something that you need to be putting together? Uh, there's colla- been a lot of collaborations with breweries, um, yeah, like with distilleries, with, with distilleries and breweries. Uh, with distilleries and distilleries, uh, not 
that I can think of off the top of my head, but I... Let's make it happen. I will have to think <laughs> about that. I think there yeah. is possibly... There was a collaboration with Ava Muth and uh, West Winds. They did a collaboration recently, which yeah. isn't technically uh, a distilled product. Uh, there's a hand up down there. Oh, you want the drink? Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the, uh, the, we have a question. Awesome. Um, I was just going to say that West Winds uh, Vermouth collab is behind the bar as well. Yes, so the Maiden the, Voyage, I yeah. think it's called. Yeah. Oh, nice. Awesome. All right, question from the audience. Yeah, I have a question. Is that, is that Our first question. Um, to comparing... Introduce yourself. Sorry, I'm Des. First time listener. I'm Des, long time listener. First, first time, time caller. caller, yeah. Um, no, I've got a question comparing the, the beer to the spirits world. Like, we've got beer weeks in every major city, a lot of little towns and everything. Is there a spirits week or a whiskey week or anything like that? Uh, we do have celebrations that are kind of international. So there's a World Whiskey Day, um, which happens sort of around July. And there's also a World Gin Day in the same sort of period. Um, there is a World Rum Day as well, but they're not as As far as I'm concerned, every day big. is a, a rum yeah. day. But yeah. <laughs> exactly. They're not as big or as well known yet, but I think that will change in the next few years. Um, just to put things into perspective, Australians drink, in terms of volume, drink less than 1% of Australian-made, Australian-owned spirits. So we are drinking more wow. than 99% imported products and foreign-owned. Yeah. Question. Um, another question from the audience. That's an awesome here fact from by Jackson. The way. Yeah. Hi, team. Um, quick question for you, Kathleen. Um, in regards to, um, um, my brain's immediately going to gin. Um, are the gin distillers in Australia sourcing? Is, is there a farming infrastructure yet to supply enough juniper? to a gin distillery in Australia? Are they um, sourcing overseas? A lot of it is being sourced overseas. It's a really temperamental product to actually uh, produce in mass. Uh, firstly, you need a female plant and a male plant, and then they have to... It takes years and years to get them established. Uh, a a lot, bit like a panda, right? A bit like a panda, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's not the first thing that came to my mind, but that's they, awesome, yeah. <laughs> And when they have I a think, baby, I think that's a question that I so far. <laughs> yeah, the babies are beautiful. Uh, so there's actually uh, a, quite a few distiller or a number of distillers experimenting with a native jun- juniper called Bubiala. Uh, uh, for example, Kangaroo Island Distillery off Kangaroo Island in South Australia uh, are doing a gin with that at the moment and there's a few others experimenting with that, which is a possibility for the future. He's also starting to farm that that plant, which is an Australian uh, native plant. Uh, a lot of the juniper at the moment is sourced out of Europe, places like um, Macedonia, Italy... Uh, Spain, I think, as well. There is a, a person in the US who is starting to build like acres and acres and acres of uh, like starting to farm juniper as well, because there is uh, they are estimating that there will be a world shortage of juniper as well, because um, yeah, right. more more people are actually cooking with juniper as well. So it's not only the distillers be getting their hands on it; it's we it's need, like, also a the Ryan about law to stop is, any yeah. unused consumption as the bacon shortage that I've been reading about for the last five years. <laughs> don't, don't, please don't bring that up. <laughs> Just uh, another question on that, Kathleen. Does 
Juniper sauce from different areas have different flavor characteristics. I... Like if, if you're growing juniper in America, is that going to be different from Macedonia or? Yeah, I believe it. It does have a difference. It's similar to, I guess, in comparison to beer, when you look at different grain from different mm-hmm. origins as well. Yep. It definitely does have, yeah, different qualities in to flavor. Yeah. Awesome, Kathleen. I just want to ch- um, touch on something that you said there. Only one percent of spirits drunk. Less than 1%. Less than 1% of spirits drunk in Australia are are Australian-made. We often hear about how hard it is for craft brewers to sort of get into public houses and bars and get on the taps there. Is it even harder for local distillers to try and dislodge some of those massive multinational brands, you know, in the spirits to Kansas in the bottles behind the bar than it is for for beer? Yeah, it is. Look, I think the the global players, uh, there's a lot of uh, really strong global i guess companies that play in with the australian market budgets as well right? with massive bar- yeah. budgets yeah um i i think it's been on premise that has really when i say on premise so bars and cocktail bars that have really and pubs that have championed the i guess uh, whole movement for australian craft spirits about 80 percent of our business is those types of venues it's yeah, the bigger companies. Um, so, for example, if you're looking at all the categories of spirits in Australia, the biggest category overall is actually bourbon in Australia in terms of dark spirits. And I think we are per capita like one of the biggest bourbon drinkers uh, in in the world in terms of um, countries. Uh, in places like Perth or WA, they actually over-index in premium bourbon than any other place in the world as well so you're sounding surprised when you say that i'm from wa and i <laughs> i i just can i our, just vision I'm like, like yeah our, our <laughs> gin, one of our gins from tasmania uh, uh mchenry gin which is actually barrel aged in um brussels reserve casks which is a high-end bourbon from the u.s uh does particularly well in in the wa as well which i was um quite surprised because I, I think it's to do with that sort of uh, figures on, on the bourbon. In- yeah, <laughs> Steve, Steve from Ferrell was just saying that yeah, we, they sit with a, a beer and a bourbon. Is that is that yeah. part of that reason for um, that? And, and the funny thing is it's also a, a, a regional thing, bourbon as well. It's We're not allowed to call that sort of style whiskey in Australia bourbon. It's only a US product. It's similar to tequila or similar to champagne in France. Um, so there are some guys in Australia producing a bourbon-style product. Uh, so Is that how you call it, a bourbon-style? Well, or? for now, yeah, yeah, or Australian whiskey, we could call it. We're still, as, as an industry, trying to work out a name to regionalise it to Australia so that it's recognisable for people who normally drink bourbon. Yeah, that, sounds but, like, that sounds like a big barrier, actually. Yeah, it is. So Whippersnapper Distillery in Perth, they're actually one of the... Um, I guess distillery is really fo- focusing on that sort of style of product. There's also uh, another distillery starting up in Melbourne as well, uh, which are doing that sort of style product too. So we'll, we'll probably see in a few years' time more and more. Um, there's also another distillery in the bottom of WA at, in Albany, uh, Great Southern Distilling uh, Company. They produce a product called Tiger Snake, which is a bourbon style. That was actually the first one in Australia produced since... The resurgence. So Whippersnapper is uh, one of those distilleries that's actually collaborated with breweries because I think they've done yes, some stuff with Feral, right? Yes, they've done some stuff with yep. Feral, yeah. 
So just on the whippersnapper part, um, we've actually got a beer on uh, on Wednesday, so it's a bit of a shameless plug, but it just leads in very nicely in the collaboration and also the Australian bur- like bourbon whiskey movement. Um, so Royal Albert last year was probably one of the very lucky venues that got a, a beer that we called um, Boris Snapper. Um, there was only t- was, so we got we got um, the very very first. It was a first, beautiful beer. We got the very first barrel, uh, which they'd done a uh, whip snapper, done a, a semi-aged moonshine, which is which is behind on the shelf as well. And crazy we, uncle. Crazy uncle. We got that. Uh, we basically got that very first barrel, and we we filled it up with our Russian Imperial Stout called Boris, and we left it in there for a, it was about three months. Um, actually, it was a bit longer than that, three five months. Um, at the time, you know, the, the spirit was quite raw and, and it is quite, you know, there is a fair bit of heat to it, so I didn't need a huge amount of time. Um, from there, um, this has just kind of evolved out of, out of control and it's probably a beer that can't be, like, made again. Um, we, on Wednesday night, we've got one keg here and, again, there was only four barrels made, so one went to, the, um, to our brewery ourselves. The collaboration was also with Main Liquor, which is a really great liquor store in Perth. Um, and of course ourselves and and what we did is we we made a 14 well we made a barley wine uh, based off of our razorback barley wine recipe and we took we took a third of that that beer uh, wash we took it down to whippersnapper and we we distilled that that beer or the the word itself um, and what what happened was sort of like a, a 85 proof spirit uh, we then we then Yikes. took we then took that spirit and we we soaked the the barrels which was their barrel uh, for about three months with that spirit and then we put the barley wine which we'd been uh, holding onto back into that barrel uh, where it sat for another uh, five months um, so. Uh. Then it goes on that this, this keg that we've actually got on Wednesday nights, one of the four kegs. That was um, Wednesday night here, right? Wednesday, Wednesday night, night here, Wednesday at the Royal, at the Royal Albert. Albert. At the Royal Albert. But uh, if, you, if you're listening to the podcast... Uh, too late, it was last week. Yeah, uh, it, it, yeah. <laughs> last Wednesday. Last Wednesday. Should have come to the live recording. Absolutely. So, so once again, uh, this, is, this is pretty much the only keg that's ever made it to the East Coast. Uh, we haven't served it yet at the brewery, and we've aged the kegs, the kegs for over a year now. So it'd be really, really interesting awesome. to try and see, and um, definitely worth coming down to the Feral Hoedown on Wednesday night at the Royal Albert. <laughs> <laughs> The Royal Albert, hey, Wednesday thanks. night. Shameless. Thanks, Vinny. Cheers. Um, all right. Does everybody have um, our next beer in front of them? Is there anyone without the next beer? Everyone's got it. All right, this is the, um, the India Pale Lager from the Beer Farm, um, another Margaret River brewery, I believe. It's, um, um, I'm really digging this beer right now. Yeah. Um, I've mostly does, finished Does mine. anyone know the, the heritage of the Beer Farm? In the audience? Ah, yeah. Um, so the beer farm was actually the WA... Uh, originally was the WA arm of Young Henry's. Yeah. And then um, they sold it off, right? And then when they decided to uh, split that up into two different things, the beer farm became its own entity. And this is really exciting because this uh, Sydney Craft Beer Week and the uh, pint of origin here at Royal Albert is the first time, I, th- I believe, that I we're be- actually I getting... I believe so. I believe so. We're getting any of the uh, beer farm beers over here. And if it's anything by this one, which is anyone I've had so far... It's pretty bloody good. Yeah, the, yeah. This, so yeah, this is the India Pale Lager. Um, the description on tap on Untapped says like this is the one that the brewers brew for themselves. 
It's got Mosaic, um, SARS, and uh, one other hop. Magnum. Magnum's the other hop. You know what this beer has? It's got aroma for days. <laughs> this is a beer and, that and, you and, just want to sniff. And, and, the, and the thing and is, like, yeah. it, it has aroma, but it's, like, clean as fuck as well. It really so does. Such it a really nice does. Clean finish. Like, yeah. I've... I've you know, I, I I've been telling Lee to top me up for the last five minutes of this beer, <laughs> and you, I've I've still almost already. You can finished. just you can just envisage drinking this beer on a forty degree day, right? You know, just to quench the thirst. It's it's so slaking. Um, Justin, do you know anything else about the beer farm or oh, the people that work there? Yeah, absolutely. Look, the, they came. Um, they're probably only about five or ten k's up the road from Colonial. Oh, really? Um, came across yeah. as um, as young Henrys and. And gave a, a a young girl named Chloe uh, the job, and look, it's a it's a really tight community down there, even all across Margaret River to Yelling Up. You're alone when your breweries are ten k's apart, so we've got a really great relationship with them in Margaret River and sharing malt and hops. And the first thing you do when you realise your oxygen bottles run out and you're on word transfer is you hop in a Ute and you drive theirs and you steal theirs and you drive back. You don't even ask. So. Um, <laughs> Look, they've done really, really well. They they brewed without a roof for probably six months. The brewery was installed outside, and that actually um, blew my mind when I saw photos of that. Like a brewery that doesn't have a roof. Yeah, they um they went through a fair bit of the old SPF fifteen, um, <laughs> and still came out looking like uh, gingers. They is it, it fair to say there's a lot of stainless steel, and the UV was coming from everywhere. Yeah. So is it fair to say that their water's not as pure as yours? And if they've got no roof, uh, no, no. Look, oh, they, they might have had a few water problems as well. They're, but they're, they've just they're, they've battled through all those problems. That's part of a startup. They've they've gone through and and they've got a roof on their place now. They've they've got a liquor license. They're open to the public. They've installed one of the longest slip and slides known to man. And that'd and be Benny Joseph. A really great right? environment. Yeah. yeah, that's all Benny Joseph. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's got a few claims to fame. We won't necessarily out them all on on this podcast. <laughs> I can tell you one a bit later, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> I actually did out one on as a at the Perth Raw Beer Show, but that's all right. Um, <laughs> So, and they've done really well. And they've got their beer in, uh, in Settlers in town and they're, they're consistent already. So for a brewery that's been around for a year and a half, the key to, to getting people to really enjoy your beer is to deliver the same thing again and again. Um, Feral has been a, a marker of that. Nail Ale has been a marker of that. Last Drop, there's a lot of breweries in WA who have made their names by just being reliable and trustworthy on the quality of the beer they produce. And, and you go down to Margaret River and you get into the tavern and you order a, a Young Henry's, uh, sorry, a a beer farm brown or something like that and it, and it lives up to it you know yeah. they're, they're doing really they're making really good beer so it's I great it's for actually, the region it's really exciting to see uh, not only beer farm but some of the other breweries at uh, the Royal Abbots and I hate to do is like the shameless plug the whole night but I'm actually really at excited at least I'm not doing it so well it's, it's a change yeah <laughs> At least it's It'll not pay the bills. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, like seeing stuff like Cheeky Monkey and, you know, Beer Farm and breweries like this, Karam, and seeing them... Uh, well, Cheeky's just gone from strength to strength. Uh, you know, that was that was Red Proudfoot who, who left Cheeky to go and, and start up Pirate Life. A little known um, brewery called Pirate Life, yeah. Yeah, yeah, just a little startup. that yeah. I don't know if you've seen their beers. They're yeah, pretty they, average. They won't, they won't last. I never yeah. heard of it. They'll never last. Longer it's, term listeners might remember Red should from, learn how to use from hops. last year. Um, so yeah, but but um, Ross Ross took the charge there when Red left, and he's he's reinvented the beers and done really really well for a guy who's taken over a brewery and only been a year. He, he's really stepped everything up another level. So there, there's a for Margaret River as a regional area, and Swan Valley is another one in Perth. You know, uh, Margaret River's supporting twelve, thirteen breweries now, and and the Swan Valley's six, seven, eight. Steve, yep, three distilleries, yeah, yeah. Three, three, three distilleries in the Swan Valley. So. Yep. They're not actually big regions. You've got to remember, Three this is WA. 
Wow. We, we, we don't have the population to support a lot of these things. If someone in Victoria, you know, now said, oh, I went out to the Yarra Valley and there was 14 breweries, you'd lose your mind, you know. There's, so it's, it's a really great area and great support and great industry and, and everyone's doing really well. Awesome, man. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's something like I think sometimes we here in you know, cities like Sydney or Melbourne sort of get a bit disconnected from where these things come from because we just like get angry when we can't get things. But the beer miles that beers like these today have travelled and the way they're tasting, it's it's a, I think it's yeah, a really good. is is huge. And you've got to remember the models that some of these breweries start with. Over here, you're in a very crowded market with a very short distribution, so. The model is generally to get my beer out there, whereas, whereas in Western Australia, the model is literally just to sell my beer local. Yeah. There was 250 breweries at Federation, and they just whittled down to two, and it was about two years ago, um, one of the beer historians, one of the beer Jedis, we call him, Roger Bustle in, in Western Australia, he, he did some maths and did all the numbers, and it was two years ago, we finally surpassed that number of, of breweries as Federation, so... From 250, we whittled all the way down to two and we built our way back to 250 because the, the times have turned. Although the revolution has shown that transport can get beer to places, everyone's understood that yeah. it's not necessarily for the better of the beer. So everyone's jumping back on that local um, bandwagon and, and the, the fresher the better. Um, just uh, while we're talking about lovely beer farm beers, we have a little special guest in the audience who's trying to make a quick run out the door. Um, but we have a representative of the beer oh, farm in the shit. building. Oh, how hey, good is that? Come Give it up. Do you want to come up and have a quick chat about beer farm and the IPL that we're, we're drinking at the moment? Because it's tasting bloody awesome. Thank you. No worries. Um, Ian from the beer farm. Hey, Ian. How you going? I'm good, thank you. Cheers. So, we're, everyone tried the IPL? We're on the IPL now, yeah. What, what do we think? It's awesome. Yeah, good. good to hear. We're just saying how well it's travelled and the aroma on this beer is just phenomenal. Pack, packs a punch, a lot of hops. Yeah. Um, yeah. We've spent a bit of time sort of crafting what we want to be, and um, hopefully that comes through on the beers. So we were just uh, discussing the history of Beer Farm and where its origins started. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about what you guys are doing now and what the direction for Beer Farm is? I didn't want to correct Foxy, but I would like to say that we're not Margaret River. We're the Margaret River region, but Metricup is the way forward. <laughs> it's apparently where Ned Kelly was from or something. I don't know. <laughs> It's where oxygen bottles come from, apparently. Um, so, yeah, the beer farm, um, obviously, um, it's, it's all in the name. So we, um, we have a property where we've turned a dairy into a, a brewery, which is a little bit different. Um, looking at the products that we can produce, uh, there's a full cycle there in terms of the grains that we use, trying to use a lot of uh, WA-based grains. Um, and then through a cycle, we've got an Angus cattle running on site as well, so we... Um, we feed them the spent grain, hoping they'll get um, fat and drunk, and then we feed them with a the beer. It's awesome. a simple philosophy. And um, so we're just saying, as far as I'm, as far as we're aware, the, these are the first chance we've had to have beer farm beers in Sydney before. Um, so we've got the IPL in front of us. What else do we have, and what else might might we have a chance to get a hold of this week? You might have to come here on Friday night, and I think we've got uh, 14 beers. Tell you what, Mick needs to pay so some we, advertising. Ta- He's getting some plugs out of this one. <laughs> 14 we've, we've taken all 14 taps. All right. So Do we you, have been busy. What have you got? So I know you've got the Berliner Weiss as well on tap today. So we've got a Berliner Weiss. We've got a, a marmalade saison. We've got a, a, saison, a normal saison. Um, brown ale, IPA, IPL, lager, everything in between. Awesome. Oh, that's sounds, very exciting. Sounds great. Bit, bit of barrel-aged stuff. Yum. 
And is this a bit of a taste of the future to come? Will we, can we hope to see some more beer farm beers in, in Sydney? It is the, the start. It is the start? Awesome. All right, guys, hand of applause. Thank you very much Thank for you. joining Thank us. You. Cheers. All right. Um, we're going to take a, a short break so you guys can all go to the loo, you know, finish your beers, rinse your beers out um, before we start pouring the next and last beer. Um, before I forget, yeah. there has been a distillery collaboration. Yeah, oh, we got go. it. Oh, yes. awesome. I was Tell just filing yeah, through my it. head. Um, so in Tasmania, all of the whiskey producers down there, about nine of them, all pretty much uh, distilled 100 litres of whiskey each and it all basically got mixed together and then each distillery took away 100 litres in a cask and it's being aged as we speak and will be released as in two to three years' time as oh, a wow. special, oh my God. special <laughs> whiskey release. Got a quick question here. Is that like monkey shoulder? Um, it's better. <laughs> yeah. yeah. In style, is in that like style, monkey shoulder? Uh, it'll... A little bit different, yeah, a little bit different. But, yeah, si- similar sort of concept. So, roughly so when we expect shine. that. To... Um, I think in the next 12 months it'll be ready. And I'm assuming that's going to be a, a product sold by Nipper Courage? No, 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 it'll be by the distilleries direct. Ah. So you'll be able to buy it through the cellar doors. It's all part of a new, I, I guess, group of distilleries down there. Um, they're trying to regionalise uh, Tasmanian whiskey at and the moment. So, so yeah. Um, because it has, you know, really good reputation throughout the world in terms of quality. And I guess the environment for ageing whiskey as well in Tasmania is is really ideal. It's similar to the Ice climate of, of, of Scotland. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's fantastic for ageing whiskey. So the guys are uh, pretty much formed, uh, I think it's the Tasmanian Whiskey Association, to try and really put Tasmania on the map globally for, for whiskey. Awesome. All right, guys, we're going to take a quick break because I really need to go to the bathroom. Yeah. Um, it was, um, Liam yeah. sent me a text saying, can we have a pee break, please? <laughs> um, yes, pee is the word I used, <laughs> yes. Um, all right, it'll be, we're going to take probably about 10 minutes and then uh, make sure you're still in your seats. And, um, yeah, we'll get the next beers out to you ASAP. Sessionable. All right, guys, so we're on the Homewood stretch. I think we've got one more beer to go. Is that right? This is the last beer, yeah. This is the last beer? But we're doubling it up with some awesome, awesome rum. Yeah, it's coming up, it's coming up. Um, before we get going, I'd like to thank everyone for coming tonight. There were some pretty fucking awesome events going on today, and you guys chose to yes. come to see us. So I'm so thankful that you came to see us. Um, yeah, round of applause for you guys for coming. Thank thanks you. Thanks, everyone. Always a fun time to have a drink with all of you. Um, we are now bringing out a colonial nitro porter with, I believe, some Order River rum. So, it, which one in particular? Uh, it's the Order River Premium. The Order River Premium. So, um, who wants to talk first? Colonial first or Order River first? Let's talk about the rum first, I reckon. Let's talk about the rum first. So, Kathleen, do you want to tell us about Old River in general, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, and yes. about this one in particular? Okay. So, uh, the name Old River actually comes from the river that runs through Kununurra. It's one of the biggest uh, agricultural... Uh, sources of water in Australia for um, uh, in that region they grow a lot of grain they actually grow quinoa corn um, a lot of different grass seeds for farming as well malt barley 
uh, sorry, not malt, barley, uh, wheat. Um, in fact, that is also the same region where uh, Whippersnapper Distillery just sourced their quinoa from to start producing a whiskey-style product made from quinoa. Wow. Um, when you're saying quinoa, do you mean quinoa? Quinoa. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Quinoa. Mate, we're painting this glorious picture of your quinoa. state and their premium quinoa. bourbon uh, production, <laughs> and then you just rock out the... Quinoa. <laughs> so, um, so going back to Spike, as I said before, he's he's kind of in his seventies. He's originally from the US. He used to have a farm on the border of Mexico and moved his family out to Australia in the seventies. And um, so, he um, started up a seed business. And what I, what actually happened in the 90s and the late 80s is that the Australian dollar became really strong. And so Australians actually stopped buying from local producers because it was much cheaper to buy from grain growers outside of Australia and import it. Uh, so he's, he said, I've got to keep my family going. So he ended up uh, looking into starting up a winery and then realised that grapes, it was too hot, the region, to grow grapes. And he had all this sugarcane growing, so he decided to make rum. Um, it's all, everything is done in-house at uh, the Hootery. Uh, they source their barrels from, for the rum from Griffith and South Australia, from the wine regions there. They don't know what the actual casks are. A lot of them are 300 litre, um, ex-red wine casks, a lot of them. And um, they have to cooper the barrels themselves because there's no coopers out there. And when I talk about coopering, it's about reconditioning the barrels so they shave them out. It's an art in itself. And then they burn them out with a flame to give that beautiful charcoal effect. And that's where a lot of the colour comes from too. So when spirits come off the still, they come off a clear colour. And what gives it that beautiful colour is when it's been aged. So uh, colour is always a result of something that's in the distilling process that's happened afterwards. Um, So in this case, it's come from ageing. So his casks are aged between three to six years in a Solero process. When I say Solero, it's basically, if you can imagine, I'll give you a, a quick... Uh, rundown on Solero. If you had six casks in a row, your front cask, you would take half of the rum out of the front cask, then go to the second cask, add half of the rum out of the second cask into the first to fill it up again, from the third cask into the second, from the... Yeah, so on. Now, at the back cask, that's where you put your new make in, straight from the still. And then you generally take from the cask either once a year or once every six months. So that's basic idea of what Solero is so you've always got a mixture of it's like blending different barrels over a period of time. A, a continuous process continuous right? process yeah. yeah so when you smell this rum it's really really rich sort of fruitcake notes yeah, um, that's what made me fall in love with this rum it's, it's really robust in flavour, it's very hot climate, uh, the, wo- the wood for the, when, for the actual barrels works really hard they have cool nights and really, really hot days. So the wood is constantly expanding and contracting. It, they would have the highest amount of evaporation in Australia for uh, spirits. If you've ever heard of Angel Share, it's basically yep. evaporation out of the cask. They have up to about 14% evaporation. So wow. it's, it's a huge amount. And 
Uh, so Spike ended up starting up the distillery. It's it's basically in the middle of nowhere, but they are as busy as ever with with um, people coming through. And um, what's really interesting, I don't know if you got a chance to look at the label. We'll when pass I, the bottle around. Actually, when I first. When I first met with Spike, I said, oh, can we do something about updating the label? And we ended up getting into a fight. He said, my, de- my daughter designed that label. We print it off on the home printer. You're not touching it. I don't care what you think about my labels because it's all about the rum. So I went, okay, good So I said, what's this amphibian creature on the label? Well, because I didn't know what it was. And um, he said, well, that's a crocodile with, with red eyes. And I said, so uh, what's, why a crocodile with red eyes? Has it got the devil in it or something? And he said, no, no, at night when you go down to the Ord River with your torch, you shine the torch on the river, you see these big red eyes and that's the colour that the crocodiles reflect uh, you know, when the light's shining on their eyes. He also said that it's a copyright watermark to stop people from copying off his label. That's the genuine... Oh, really? <laughs> the genuine yeah, because real whenever deal. I um, make rum, I always copy that as well. So. Yeah, I know. So many people are trying to copy <laughs> that label. But no, that's his little signature. But it will be changing very soon. So these little so bottles are going to be uh, collectibles. <laughs> um, but it's funny because the bar industry really love how... You know, um, handmade they are. It and just has a bit of a, a, a lot of character. It's not a bit of a pirates like treasure map like sort a of a thing, doesn't map it? Yeah, and pirate, yeah. yeah. But um, his his uh, rums have won awards all over the world. They've won double gold in San Francisco, which is a really um, big yeah. competition in the US. Uh, he's also won in the UK as well uh, a gold medal. Um, he does all different styles of rums. This is his flagship rum. It's basically 40% alcohol. Uh, it's just the, the uh, I guess, uh, you know, everyday sort of rum that you would drink. The next step up is an overproof, which is around 56% alcohol. The other ones that he has is a single barrel um, and cast strength rum, which is one of my favourites. It's really, really delicious and rich in uh, flavour. And strong. Uh, He also has a 10-year-old rum too, which uh, is called Spikes Reserve, which is selected from the two best casks. There aren't actually many 10-year-old rums in Australia. And there aren't many single-barrel rums in the world. There's only a couple of rummeries in the world that actually do single-barrel. So it's quite rare and unique. Um, His selection of rums were all selected for Noma Restaurant. Noma Restaurant has won World's Best Restaurant four years out of six. Um, they fell in love with his products, I guess, because Sorry, of the Sorry, just to interrupt, but you're talking about the Noma in Scandinavia, not the pop-up yes. Noma here, uh, the right? Pop-up. The pop-up. Yeah, the here. pop-up. Right. So uh, Noma closed their restaurant down for in, in Copenhagen. They close it down for 12 weeks of the year. And what they do is they go and set up in another city around the world. They are famous for foraging for food and um, collecting all local uh, produce to come up with these amazing dishes and styles. And they um, basically the year before closed down and went to Tokyo and did um, basically a a Japanese-style menu and used all local produce and and local producers for that. Then they came to Australia this year for 10 weeks. And basically it was uh, $500 per head 
to eat at the restaurant. The tickets went up for sale. There were 5,000 tickets. They sold in 90 seconds. And there was a waiting list of 25,000 people. There was also to drink. It was $300 per head on top of that. So 800 bucks to get. I'll tell you what, looking at the list of whoever their food and beverage person was that sourced their, their booze range for Australia, they did a, a really good job. They had producers like Ord River, um, uh, Two Minute Hall, um, yes. uh, Edge Brewing, Grifter Brewing. And yeah, so wh- whoever um, put together their alcohol selection and pairings did an amazing job yeah. of finding some it really great producers. Mads Clip, yeah. and um, he was working closely with uh, uh, writer uh, Mike Benny from Australia. Yeah. Um, so they worked together to source all small regional producers all over Australia that had unique stories behind their products. People that don't use artificial colours or flavours or anything like that. They used a lot of natural wines that don't have preservatives and... Um, uh, certain techniques uh, that are, are a bit more natural and organic as well. Awesome. Yeah, they did a great job. Awesome but job. Kathleen, how do you go about finding these really small producers, these one-man band operations that you talk about? How do, you, how do they get onto your radar in the first place? Um, in the beginning, uh, it was basically me trying to track them down. And um, now there's uh, quite a few of them that, that knock on my door, which is nice as well. Um, it means that we're getting the word out there and people are, you know, recognising Nipper Courage as, you know, a, a, I guess a, a distributor for, for those kind of guys. Um, yeah, it, it, but in the beginning it was very hard to sort of get people across. So you're just going to distribute Australian products and that's it. And I'm like, yeah, because every other distributor in Australia has imported products who distribute spirits. So, yeah, it's such a small part of the market and very niche. Are you exporting a lot, Any? We're doing a little bit into Asia, not much, um, but we just came back from the US because we uh, did a presentation at Tales of the Cocktail, which is one of the biggest bartender conferences in the world, and um, we did a whole uh, session on the whole movement of Australian craft spirits and and where we're coming from and where we're heading, and um, we were lucky. I spent a bit of time meeting with importers and distributors over there. It's a very difficult process for alcohol when you're exporting to the US. You have to first have an importer, then a distributor, and then you can start working with customers because it's... It's all to do with the prohibition laws. Three-tiered system. The three-tiered system. So uh, it's the same for beer and for wine as well, but um, they're very, very strict. And so we've just uh, signed up with an importer and we've got a distributor in California and one in New York. And we're just just hopefully very close to getting one in Texas as well. Awesome. Yeah, great. Um, We have a question over here. It's more of a comment. uh, We have a comment over here. From, from Daniel. Yeah. Hey, everyone, I'm Daniel. It's my hey, first Daniel. time here. I'm here thanks to Will. Um, Cheers. <laughs> yeah, no, my, my comment really, I, was, I did a bit of planning and I was fortunate enough to go to Noma um, when they were here. Oh, wow. Um, and I, I was just going to say that the alcohol was amazing, the pairings, um, and I'm convinced I actually proposed on that night and I'm convinced that that's why my fiancé said yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm going to say, well That's played, awesome mate. That was, a, that was a very smooth operator move well played, right there. Well played. Yeah. Um, talking about uh, smooth, um, we also have a, a nitro-poured beard here. Oh, what a wow. segue. Oh, segue oh, for yeah. days. Look at that. Yeah. That's horrible. Uh, that's what, that's, that's why not he the worst thing he said today box. as well. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, look, uh, the, the port has been a, a staple for Colonial for a couple of years, uh, well, since I've joined Colonial as well. Um, t- to be honest, a, a port is meant to sit in the background a little. It's a, it's a, it's a beer between a lager and a, and a stout. It's, it's meant to be, it originated from people who used to blend beers at the bar. It's the old black and tan and, and it was a style, it, it sort of became, it was meant to be known as the, the word entire, which was uh, the first br- the brewery to make uh, a recognised style. Um, they called it entire because it was the, the common drink that people mixed together. It was the combination of those taps. So compared to this rum, the aromas coming off that rum are unbelievable. Um, and this beer just complements just sitting in the background and adding a beautiful chocolate sort of richness to it. Um, it's a lovely yeah, pairing. We, we put it on nitro yeah. uh, maybe about a year ago. Um, again, just, just in the word of experimentation, a couple of people had done it at the time. Um, and it just creates a much more creaminess to the beer. So it's, it's a simple beer to make. It's, a, it's about winter nights and campfires and those kind of things. Can you talk about the decision to go nitro versus CO2? Yeah, because we love it. Brad especially. Is Brad, it, Brad's yeah. a big fan of nitro. Um, yeah. Thanks, guys. Throw me under the bus. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, look, nitro's a big fan of Brad. That's fine. LAUGHTER um, it's uh, nit- nitrogen is just a much smaller bubble, so it's really hard to dissolve in the into the liquid. You do it under a high pressure, um, you get a lot of liquid in there. But it's also it, it really doesn't want to come out of the liquid as well, and that's what widgets and um, creamers are all about. You've got to force the nitrogen out, and once you carry a little bit out, it carries a lot with it and forms a really really tiny dense bubble. Uh, yeah, and it just creates a creamy mouthful um, feel. So this is a really different pairing compared to the last one where it, you're right. I think that this is all about letting that rum, not to, to play against the beer, but it lets the rum sort of come through and that the, the porter actually just sort of has a nice the undertone. Rum, the rum it. aromatics are, are much stronger than the beer. But and actually the, the beer helps bring out a lot of that raisiny and rum characteristics from the, from the rum as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, and it's a compliment. The, the, both enhance each other on this one. They're not... A sip of one makes you want a sip of the other and you just keep going back and forth and the flavour builds, whereas in those other examples, the flavour contradicts itself each exactly time. Right, yeah. And that carbonation difference uh, really helps, I think, with that as well. Yeah, nitrogen, it's, it's, it's literally uncarbonated. It's, it's, there's a lot of people out there who prefer nitrogenated beers because they don't like getting that bloated feeling. So it, it's, and it's becoming more popular. I think Mornington have had a bit of success, Mountain Goat have had a bit of success and... We're experimenting with a liquid nitrogen into our can line, so we can actually put some liquid nitrogen on top of the can post-fill. Awesome. Um, yeah. The little drop of liquid nitrogen creates an overpressure in the can as we seam it, and then as that rush of liquid nitrogen is released, um, it, 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 it effectively replaces the widget. So we'll be able to do this in our coming winter. We'll do, we'll do the nitro porter in that's cans. That's really exciting, yeah. And, uh, yeah, get a, a beer out there that's pre-nitrogenated, but the, the release of that high-pressure throws that nitrogen out and creates that same cascading effect. Is that in done elsewhere in the world, Justin, or is that something... Yeah, absolutely, yeah. We're, um, I mean, Mornington are doing it now with a, that couple of um, nitrogenated beers that they've released, okay. um, and, it, and it's definitely been done in the States with Oscar Blues and a few others. Um, the widget's quite prohibitive to get into in the market. And it's expensive. Expensive, so yeah. this is another way to, to replicate that. You do have to pour the beer pretty quickly. You still have to create some vigorous action. Um, but... Uh, it, it's, it, once you learn how to do it, you can create that effect. And once you break a little bit of nitrogen out, the rest just comes naturally. It just follows. All right. 
Awesome. Um, so I think very shortly we will wrap up the we podcast. Will be wrapping up. Um, we'll is there some uh, questions from the audience before yeah, we do? There so is a few more questions. Lots of questions. I think there's a couple of right. questions. Saved them all to the end. Um, all right. Who, who? Yep. Okay, Morgan. Hey. Um, so we've all like uh, we all know that there's like sort of craft beer newbie mistakes stuff like you know drinking like IPA out of the can without pouring it into a glass or like a- aging oh, aging it for a year or something. <laughs> Um, so, like, but what are the what are the newbies? Because I think I am definitely a newbie to craft spirits, and I think there's probably a lot of us here who are. So, what are the mistakes that newbies and craft spirits make? What are, what are, what do you see people doing? And you go, oh man, don't do that. I think um, uh, what makes me cringe at the moment is when people say I'm going to make a vodka because yeah. in mainstream Australian terms of consumption, vodka's massive, um, but. You know, big importers are bringing... Uh, vo- there's a surplus of vodka and people are basically bringing vodka into Australia for $2 a bottle, then adding the excise on and and um, reselling it into the marketplace. Um, <clears throat> in terms of boutique and the higher end where craft's playing, um, vodka's almost dead on our portfolio and, um, you know, people that... I guess is starting out think that vodka's still a really good option, but it's not. It's a really hard but sell. Isn't vodka is like the anti everything you guys are about. Like yeah, vodka is look, the I, the I, aim for a, a flavorless neutral it's, spirit. It is. Right? It is. It's it's actually like from a salesperson's point of view and marketing, it's it's really really it's hard like the to best sell. Best vodka it's, in the world tastes like nothing. Yeah, it tastes so, like nothing. Yeah. And well, where yeah. it's so much more interesting when you've well, that's got a, that's something. the best vodka, right? Like v- the best vodka tastes like nothing, right? Yes. Well, that's the aim of vodka, is to make a neutral spirit. For people who don't like the taste of alcohol, right? Um, (laughs) Okay, something else. I have a couple more questions here. Yeah, hi. Just another couple of questions for Kathleen. Um, Just was hoping you could drill down a bit further into what criteria makes a craft spirits. Um, Just making sure that it includes, you know... And everyone no, has another I, two hours. I, I did not want to go there. I just want to make sure that, you know, all the whiskey distilleries in Tasmania are covered. And also, I guess you mentioned that you're helping a lot of these new distilleries um, export. Yes. Is that because there's not enough market here or because it's just a commercial um, imperative? Yeah, look, uh, at the moment, we kind of, as I said before, our business is predominantly in on-premise and we're trying to I guess build a lot of brand equity in the products and and really build the names of the products that we're working with if we were to go out and dump our stock into a national retailer straight away they would pretty much buy up most of the products that our guys have got and we would be would putting they actually our eggs sell it or would it just basket. sit on shelves if you did that yeah it would possibly just sit on shelves collect dust and fail so um, a lot of my guys are working on shoestring budgets and um, have pretty much got their houses on their business, like I have as well. And um, so we're tr- we're doing it probably the hardest way. You can grow a brand, um, and that's staying out of the national retailers. But we're doing it for a reason to build, um, I guess, equity in the brands and to build, I guess, um, the the stories around the brands as well. Um, with with export, it's a good option for us, with, especially with white spirits because they don't have to be aged. So things like gins, um, there's a lot of interest in the overseas markets, especially with uh, overseas uh, or with Australian botanicals, because you can't find them anywhere else in the world, and they are really truly unique as well in flavour. 
So there's a, an exoticness and attraction to Australian products for that reason as well, as well as the production methods that are quite high, uh, the standards in Australia. The With... Um, uh, export as well. It's good because the guys will get economies of scale for their business with white spirits instead of dumping it international retailers. So that's that's another reason why we're doing that as well. Um, it also um, what really hurts Australian business as well with the uh, spirits here is the taxes. Um, so for a bottle of gin, for example, um, you would be looking at $30 tax on a single bottle of gin in Australia. Whereas if you're... hand Wait. Ouch. Is that... Uh, wait, internal. Internal. Yeah. So with, yeah. with export, we don't attract that tax. Um, the taxes are a lot less overseas. And um, we have one of the highest tax rates in the world in Australia for spirits. And it grows every six months. It's the same as with beer. So you're saying a bottle of Ward River could potentially be cheaper in other countries than yes. in Australia? Yep. 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 That's fine. And, and yeah. <laughs> <coughs> the cool. challenge for <laughs> Australian producers is that... Um, uh, they're not making it on commercial scale, so we don't have the cost benefits or savings that, say, a Smirnoff does overseas or, a, you know, I'm trying to think of big companies or a Jack Daniels or a Jim Beam. They're making it in commercial quantities, whereas the guys here, similar to craft brewers, making it on a smaller scale. And um, But we've got this added tax, which is just absolutely almost crippling the industry, um, which is really, really tough. And you craft beer guys thought you had it bad. Um, yeah. All right, one last question from Ben here. Hey, uh, so question is on um, nitro in beers. Um, if it's a, not specifically aimed at Brad, but if it's a, you know, do, do you kind of plan and brew the beer thinking this would be fucking great on nitro or do you brew the beer, try it, and then go, hey, maybe we should try this on nitro. Is, is it, a, is it a, a planning process or is it an afterthought? Uh, no, you have to plan for it because at the end of the day, your carbonation changes the beer dramatically. The number of times we've sat there at a bright beer tank and gone, the bitterness is high, the, the body's sweet. Uh, what are we, you know, especially in these IPA on tours and these beers we've first brewed and, and you come out and you're like, it's all right, let's just put some bubbles in it and see how we feel. And you put bubbles in, you're like, okay, now it's carrying better. It's, it definitely changes the beer dramatically. So you have to factor all of that in when you know you're not going to get that carbonation. Um, that being said, you know, we, we didn't change for a porter. We didn't necessarily change it so much. But if, if someone were to do an IPA nitro, if, the, if we took our IPA and put it on nitro, you'd find it incredibly bitter and unbalanced for the lack of CO2. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, just quickly, I think there's two more questions up the front here. Okay. Uh, there's three more questions. Adrian, more great questions. job, mate. Who, good, good effort. Who, who are we going? Tristan, you want to go? Chop, chop. Oh, at the back. Uh, uh, yeah, so when it comes to the... Sorry, my name is Byron. Uh, when hey, it comes Byron. to the Hi. whiskey makers, uh, they an aged product is obviously a bit better than the younger ones. How is it that the a young uh, whiskey maker is now putting out a, a product that's good enough to drink? Do they... Yeah, so that's a good good question. So um, the rules for 
whiskey in Australia, to, to be able to call it a whiskey, it has to be aged in a, a timber vessel or a cask, but it has to be aged for a minimum of two years. Same with rum. Um, so some of the challenges, I guess, in Australia is because it's such a young industry, um, we are basically selling the whiskey before it's even bottled at the moment because it's just such a high demand for single malt whiskey. Um, so what a lot of the producers are doing are actually ageing their whiskies in smaller casks. So you'll start to see a lot of producers now coming out with a lot of 55 litre, 100 litre casks. 100 Is that litre. about like maximum surface contact? And yes, maximum stuff, yeah. surface contact. Um, uh, I have a producer in central New South Wales called Blackgate Distillery um, and they use 100 litre sherry casks pretty much for their rum and their whisky. The quality of the whiskey and rum that they are turning out, they're ageing their whiskey for three years and their rum for two years. The quality is absolutely amazing. Um, and it would be almost to the standard of like a 10-year-old whiskey, the, the, um, the, the quality of the whiskey being produced. But we're also talking about a climate that's a lot hotter than, um, you know, whis- traditionally whiskey is made in as well. That's something I was going to ask is um, how much does climate have to, pay to, to, to play in the thing? Because I know, like, you know, we're talking about Scotch whiskeys and their yeah. climate... They, there's a long, long maturation period. Or there is. You have distilleries like uh, Cavalan in Taiwan, for example, with really humid temperatures and so yes. they can age very fast. So. Yeah. So um, an example of, I guess, where things kind of didn't work out the way they wanted was um, with William McHenry in McHenry Distillery in Port Arthur, Tasmania. He was using, uh, in the beginning, 200-litre casks for his whisky, but he had to age it for five years. Um, now he's gone to smaller casks. He's getting a really good result out of um, two to three years now. So, um, But, yeah, there's still um, a lot of the Tassie guys are all going over to 100-litre as well to get that richness um, from the whisky. Uh, and a lot of the warmer climates are also using that. But places like Perth, where Whippersnapper is, I think they're using um, 220s, uh, 220s or 300s, but they're ageing quite quickly because of the weather. And Old Spike as well, up in Kununurra, he's using 300s because it ages quite quickly too. So, yeah. Awesome. Thank you very much. Um, yeah. Are we doing one more question? Yeah, go for it. One yeah. more question. Okay. Hi, guys. My name's Jack. Um, hey, Jack. Fairly specific question for Kathleen. Um, earlier, earlier in the evening, you mentioned um, the Asian market sort of yes. has, you know, there's a, there's a an attraction towards the, the Australian craft spirits just because of the, um, I guess, the regulations and, you know, so forth that we have in, in place. Um, I, I, I've spent a, a bit of time in China um, and I've seen the, the attraction towards Australian products um, you know, it's it's well known the the milk powder and so on, but especially like beers, craft beers and so on. A Hawthorne Brewing Company, so they're mm. exporting to to China now. Um, have you seen uh, the the sort of um, attraction towards Australian craft spirits from the Chinese market because it's a massive yes. upcoming market? Um, and I mean, I, I see a lot of opportunity there for Australian craft spirits. There um, is, yeah. And yeah, just is that a potential market yeah. in the future? And, yeah, and, we, yeah, we um, have spent a bit of time in Singapore and Hong Kong with trying to establish those markets. Unfortunately, what China wants is whiskey 
And we don't have enough whiskey in Australia to supply China, unfortunately. Um, uh, one of the, but that's now. Yeah, right? it, possibly it... in the future. But even if uh, Australia's production times by 100, with where we're at now, we still wouldn't be able to supply enough uh, for China. Is it a case of one of these deals could actually just finish a distillery in terms of production? Because we get emails like, hey, um, we're really keen on a... 40-foot sea container of your beer. I'm like, hang on a sec, that's three months production. That's, that's, I can't. that's basically telling Australia you that's can't have beer That's great that you really months. want our beer, but I, yeah. that's just going to screw our brand in Australia. So you just say no because the volumes, yeah. as soon as, for a small volume to get into that market just finishes a small supplier in Australia. Yeah, it's, it's, it does almost. And, um, you know... Uh, I think with white spirits, um, there's definitely opportunity because there's economies of scale there for Australian producers. Uh, it's just a matter of, I guess, China catching up with the white spirit trends that are happening around the world. But they're already interested in a few of the Australian gins that are quite um, focused on Australian botanicals. So we've seen that starting to happen now as well. Just to expand on that, I think... Um my experience in the Chinese market's all been very brand perception it orientated is. and luxury Johnny brands. Walker. Johnny Walker. Um, how are these Australian brands perceived over there? Are they perceived as premium brands? Or? They are, yes. Um, so uh, especially in places like Singapore and Hong Kong, it's um, they're very sort of brand aware in places like that. There's a lot of uh, again, is really that a, interesting a, bars there too that promote sort of global brands. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but is that, is that the... The Singapore and Hong Kong have some amazing like cocktail bars. Is that what's sort of driving it yes, over there? Yes, uh, it's similar to Australia. It's the on-premise trade or the bars and the and the pubs that are driving, I guess, the interest in in the market. It's also the bartenders too. Um, the bartenders. I think um, what's happening with spirits is the younger generations, the millennials and um, the uh, Gen Ys. They want to know where these products are being produced, who produces them, what ingredients um, are being used, the methods, what still they're using. These are the guys that are all asking the questions about these products. And um, that's happening with all the bartenders as well. And people want to know the story behind the brands. There's some really, really cool stories about um, a lot of these distilleries and breweries and how they got started. And people love those stories and the provenance. Awesome. So can I? It, we right. just Brian's you, got a quick one. We just mentioned we talked about brands in uh, in spirits. Justin, I just want to talk to you about your brand in terms of colonial. Very sort of clean colours. Clean. Once you finish I'm, reading, mate. I'm reading the branding. distilling spirits book. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, in terms of the naming convention, you know, the beers are called pale ale, IPA, porter. There's no sort of fancy, funny names there. Well, Was that a, a conscious? Obviously, you haven't seen our project series. <laughs> Look, there's there's definitely two ways to look at it. There's um, there's stylistic look and there's character characteristic naming of those things. And uh, there's a really there's a really good space for both in the market. We found that that the core range is really stylistic for us, and that's where we've sat. Um, but it's important to to innovate a little bit and create and and do something different. You know, eighty percent of what we do is draft and small ale at the moment. Now we've got a few more in cans that'll change a little bit, but. We, we need to you need to be inventive and creative and, and just keep playing at the end of the day this is a hobby for all of us and that's why we love it so much because our work is our hobby so we really like to invent and create different things so 
for us to make Gary's Big Red Banana and um, <laughs> Gary the White and Spanger, which was a Southern Pacific Australian New Zealand golden ale or something. Okay. You know, that, it's a classy beer. Clear, right classy there. beer, absolutely <laughs> classy. Clearly not enough of these beers have made it to Sydney then. Eh? No, no, look, that's been a journey we've had on the West Coast and... Did it's, you do a musk stick beer? Uh, yeah, we did a musk saison. Yeah, it was Gary LeBron, man. the musk saison. Who the, uh, who the hell is Gary? Uh, look, he it, gets around, man. Uh, look, Gary's our spirit animal. Um, <laughs> there's there's five car parks in the brewery. It's staff, 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 Gary, Gary. Actually, there's six. And Gary the White. <laughs> I, I don't know who wrote this, but this is on pavement out the front of the brewery. This is, this is a real thing. Um... But, yeah, it's it's important to have those beers. That For us, Project Beer was around challenging people's perceptions. So we found that beer as wine and all of these things, a lot of the, the label was dictating what the consumer was expected to perceive. And we just wanted to take a step back from that and say, hang on a sec, this beer is called um, Mission Brown, the colour that painted the nation. You know, I grew up in a house that the balcony was Mission Brown. Dad's yeah. like, yeah. we're going to paint the balcony. What colour is it? It's Mission Brown, you know. <laughs> And so we brewed a brown ale called Mission Brown. And people go, well, what does it taste like? I said, well, have a sip. Stop and challenge yourself to actually tell me what you're tasting. We gave it out, the project series, with little tasting notes at the brewery. And, you know, do you get high malt? Do you get low malt? Do you get high hop? And just challenge people to stop and think, hang on a sec. I don't have to drink to a style. I can just try a beer. And if I like it, then I can affiliate with it and, and drink it again. Well said, man. Yeah. Alrighty, um, we're going to uh, wrap things up. Um, we've got some prizes to give out, and we usually finish the podcast with a recommendations round. Adrian and I were thinking super quick fire favorite cocktail as the recommendation. Yeah, so I was going to challenge think, that think and say uh, a Sydney Craft Beer Week re- recommendation. How about one of each? Frankie's tonight. Frankie's tonight. <laughs> Everyone, is, okay. that, is that a cocktail and Sydney Craft Beer Week recommendation? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're going to give away a couple of things. We need a t-shirt cannon. All right. Oh. T-sh- we need a t-shirt cannon. No, no, it's legal in New South Wales. It's fine. There's, there's yeah. a t-shirt cannon right, going on right um, now. Um, cocktail recommendation. Okay, Adrian, you go first. Uh, last word. Cool. Yes. My, one of my favourite cocktails. Uh, mine is uh, called a Fanchuli. Is, a, is my favourite cocktail. Good You're one. a Fanchuli. Which is uh, Manhattan with Fernet as the, yeah. as the bitters instead. Mick really owes us all drinks because mine was actually last night or maybe the night before at Sydney Craft Beer Week. Uh, here, the Elvis. Oh, it the Elvis. Oh, yeah. Elvis. Yes. One and a half shots of gin, elderflower. Uh, grapefruit. Grapefruit juice topped up with IPA. I'm gonna it's carry, available here, guys. I want to carry the Aussie flag and say my favourite cocktail is the penicillin. So, oh, nice one. Yeah. Yes, nice one. Yeah. Yes. Kathleen? Pina colada? No, no. <laughs> 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 Nothing no, wrong with that. I, I think after, uh, might look, asking me to choose what my favourite cocktail is, like trying to choose between my children and the categories, uh, but I think on a night like tonight... But, but you always have a favourite, right? On a light, <laughs> night like tonight, I would say, after having this beautiful beer, it would be a rum old fashion. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, and Brad, do you have one? I will have whatever Kathleen's having. <laughs> oh, All right. What a sucker. <laughs> um, now, we've given out some T-shirts already, um, but I think... Um, Thank you, everyone, for coming tonight. All right, guys. Thank you to Dave's Brewery Tours for sponsoring this podcast. And thank, thank you, you to, to Royal Cal- Albert for hosting. Thank you to Justin. Thank you to Kathleen. We're going to Frankie's. Yeah! See you Frankie's, everyone. Woo!